Welcome to God Knows Where. I'm Brett Harris. I'm glad you're here. I mentioned in the previous episode that this first series of this whole podcast adventure I'm on is winding down. We've got today's episode and next week's, and then we're going to pivot. We're going to pivot from, I didn't say that, to you've never read this. So look at the books and the stories that we overlook or avoid all the time, but that we can't deny are a part of our tradition, whether we like it or not. Some of them hurt to read. Others make us wonder why we never hear them read aloud or preached in our congregations. And all of them touch on topics or practices or experiences that made it hard for me to stay in the pulpit. If you've been waiting to tell folks about God Knows Where, this might be a great time to tell them about the show as we all continue to figure out just exactly where it is that God is leading us. It's also a great time still to fill out the little form I created last week for you to share those big questions that you have or your kids have about God and faith so that we can figure out how to answer them together. And don't forget to check out Good Faith Media too. Zach Dawes has been distilling some really important studies that have come out recently, including one I read this week that noted homelessness has increased in America now for seven consecutive years. Each year, for seven years in a row, more and more of our neighbors are finding themselves without a roof over their head. And if that's not something that causes us concern or that Jesus would want us to do something about, I don't know what is. You can find links to Zach's work and these studies and all the other things that I've mentioned in the show notes. Again, thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing the show. Thanks for the reviews you've written or those you are about to write about the show. And most importantly, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy today's episode, Worried Sick. I cannot more highly recommend Yuval Noah Harari's incredible book, Sapiens. It's a history of our species from our dawning to today. And there's debate about this book. I know there's debate about it, but there's no doubt that this book evokes many questions. I mowed many acres of grass listening to that book on Audible. And at one point in the book, out in the middle of a pasture somewhere, Mr. Harari's audiobook narrator told me about Homo sapiens settling down leaving their hunting and gathering ways to cultivate crops. And he started talking about wheat, this wild grain that over millennia we figured out how to harvest and mill and make breads of all kinds from. And then we also learned that when it soured and fermented, it still tasted good and made us feel more relaxed. This grain whose nourishment and enjoyment led us to want more and more. And so we began to farm. And then he went on to say that, quote, Wheat demanded a lot of them. Wheat didn't like rocks and pebbles, so sapiens broke their backs clearing fields. Wheat didn't like sharing its space, water, and nutrients with other plants, so men and women labored long days weeding under the scorching sun. The body of Homo sapiens did not evolve for such tasks. It was adapted to climbing apple trees and running after gazelles, not to clearing rocks and carrying water buckets. Human spines and knees, necks and arches paid the price. 
Studies of ancient skeletons indicate that the transition to agriculture brought about a plethora of ailments, such as slip discs, arthritis, and hernias. Moreover, the new agricultural task demanded so much time that people were forced to settle permanently next to their wheat fields. This completely changed their way of life. We did not domesticate wheat. It domesticated us. End quote. And I heard those last couple of sentences that he wrote as I was steering a tractor through a field, cutting grass in a pasture that wasn't feeding any livestock or being cultivated in any useful way. It was just growing to be mowed. And I thought to myself, what in the world am I doing? And he kept going. He went on to talk about worry and how the rise of agriculture was likely also connected to our development of worry. Before then, we had had fear, for sure. Fear of predators, hunger, storms. Fears abounded. But worry was new. Worry was about whether those storms might bring enough rain to sustain our crops so we could feed our families, so we wouldn't have to go back out and face those predators we feared and be forced to trust nature to provide for us once again. Worry about what we would do if it didn't rain. And that was tied to worry that someone might be disappointed with us because of our failure. And so we'd worry more about how to regain their approval, and then we'd worry about how to keep it, and so on, and so on, and so on. And what Harari argued wheat did to our bodies, I'd argue worry has done to our souls. And I'd argue that what wheat did to us the church has done to Jesus' message. Because over and over, dozens of times in the scriptures, and half a dozen or so times from Jesus' own mouth, he tells us, we hear, do not worry. And yet we find ourselves worrying about all kinds of things, all the time. And one thing church folks worry about all the time is the church. So much of what we've built up as the church, the way we've erected buildings on street corners and on campuses that take up city blocks and developed programs that require large staffs and marketing materials and fundraising campaigns, it's all become a source of our worry. I mean, think about the questions that we regularly ask about the church. How do we get more people to come? Why are they leaving? Why is giving down? How much are we paying for that? Who's going to do that now? On their face, these are all good questions with good intentions, but baked into each one is worry. Worry that what we know and what we do in our churches today might come to an end. Worry that the way things were isn't the way things are anymore, and that the way they are isn't the way they'll ever be again. We've turned Jesus' message and movement into an institution. And institutions have one goal, to stay alive. Not necessarily to stay relevant or productive, but simply to exist. And Jesus didn't tell us to build any of it. Not a sanctuary, not a fellowship hall, not a mission agency, none of it. He told us, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and instructing them to obey my commandments. He told us to feed 
those who are hungry. He told us to visit those who are lonesome and forgotten, to care for those who struggle to care for themselves. And Jesus made disciples with zero dollars or denarii or any kind of money. And he never wandered more than maybe a couple hundred miles in any direction from his home. He never fed folks out of a commercial kitchen, but instilled in folks that there's always more than enough to go around with just what we already have on hand. And visiting cost him, and it costs us nothing but time. And helping others who can't care for themselves might cost us something, but it's more than offset by the ways people all around us have cared for us already when we couldn't do the same. And, as far as we're told, Jesus never worried a day in his life. He walked around with nothing but a message and the trust that he had nothing to worry about. I think Jesus' vision for the church was more like two friends my wife made during college, musicians and artists who didn't own or rent a house, but rather traveled around bringing joy with their creative spirit and taking house-sitting gigs for all kinds of folks while they were out away on vacation. I think it was more like that than the institutional church we've built. And I've never seen the church feel more like what Jesus intended than that group of Baptists that I served bringing their own chairs to the front lawn to worship outside during COVID, without the music we were used to, only surrounded by the people we loved, and only so that we could be together as one body. But we've taken this wild idea that God is present in the world and that God is present in all the connections between us and Jesus' capacity for trust. And we've seen what his message can do and provide and transform us into. And we've domesticated it. We've planted it neatly. We've built it a safe environment to grow. We've reoriented our lives and our energy and our resources, keeping it cultivated, not thriving out in the wilderness. And it's doing to our minds and our souls, I think, what wheat did to our ancestors' bodies. It's domesticating us, too. It's keeping us close to what we've built, fearful of what we would do if we lost it or why it's not as productive as we'd like, more concerned with its well-being than curious about how else or where else God may be showing up. It's keeping our focus on its maintenance and its productivity and its protection. But maintain and produce and protect were not words Jesus ever used. He preferred words like follow, make, care, and go. The two practices we can unequivocally say he instituted show this, that we are to wash our neighbor's feet and that we are to remember him when we gather at our tables. Whenever a pastor stands up in front of the congregation with bread or wafers and wine or juice that are set out for the congregation, the words that are spoken are the words of institution. And I'd argue these are as close to institutions as the church should ever get. Institutions, don't get me wrong, institutions help get stuff done. They help get stuff done on a large scale, things we certainly couldn't do on our own whether it's a local institution or a global one. Each one 
is more capable of doing more of whatever they do, educate, heal, protect, whatever. Each one is more capable than any of us is able to do on our own. But that was never the goal with Jesus. The goal with Jesus was never to build anything but trust. Trust not in what we can maintain, but in what God is capable of doing. But in our desire as the church to do more, to go bigger, to get there quicker, we've missed the point. What was supposed to be grounded in trust is all too often now shaped by worry. And I can tell you that every single time my wife and I have let worry guide our decisions for our marriage or our family or our life together, we've never made the right decision. And every single time we've decided to face our fears and trust that while what's ahead of us might not be easy, God will lead us somewhere better. We've always found ourselves better off in all the ways that matter, emotionally, physically, spiritually. And that's not just true for us. Thousands of years ago, in between the sources of the Tigris and the Euphrates, our ancestors, before they settled into villages and farms and knew anything about wheat, they followed those rivers to a valley absolutely filled with life. Gobekli Tepe, it's called. What now is a harsh wilderness was, 10,000 years ago, a lush green haven full of everything they needed to survive and thrive. Some even speculate that it may have been Eden. But when they got there, when they followed those rivers to the source and found this valley, they didn't settle down. They let the land and the water and the sky there provide for them, and they worshipped while they were there. They gave thanks for this perfect provision. But we have yet to find any signs of civilization there. Only large limestone carvings and bones of wild animals. Some of our ancestors followed uncharted rivers to their source, facing their fears and all manner of dangers along the way, trusting that following that source, following to that source, would be worth it. And when they got there, they worshipped. And when they were done worshipping, they covered it all over with rocks and dirt and went on about their business. They had no use for their shrines in the midst of that wild and wonderful river valley. They never would have made it there. They never would have found that place without trust. They never would have made it there if they weren't willing to venture out into the unknown or to risk, well, to risk something big for something good. If they were worried about what they knew or what they might lose if they left where they were, they never would have found that perfect place near the source. If those of us in the church keep worrying about what we've built or what we might lose instead of trusting that God will lead us if we follow, then we'll never find our perfect place near our source either. All we'll do is break our backs and our spirits trying to hold on to what we have.
God Knows Where is written, produced, and edited by me, Brett Harris, with music by Thomas Steinwinder and Michael Trest, and unwavering support from my wife, Elizabeth. If you like what you hear, I'd encourage you to share God Knows Where with your friends and family, and give us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. It'll mean the world to me, and it'll help more people find God Knows Where. Thanks in advance for your help and for being here and for listening. Until next time, take these words from William Sloan Coffin with you. May God give you the grace never to sell yourself short. Grace to risk something big for something good. Grace to remember that the world is too dangerous for anything but truth and too small for anything but love. So may God take your minds and think through them, your eyes and see through them, and your hearts and set them on fire.